Uh, if you have your worship folder there, flip over to uh, page 10 and 11. We're going to look at uh, the rest of Romans chapter 9 this morning and the first few verses into Romans chapter 10. Just to catch you up, uh, we're back in Romans. We've been in, in the book of Genesis looking at uh, the middle section of, of Genesis, at the story of Isaac and uh, his two sons, Jacob and Esau. And we're now going to be back in Romans and look at the middle section of this letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul, Romans 9 through 11. And um, just to help you get a, a bearing, a sense of where we are, how to think about this whole letter written to the church in Rome, I want you to think about it as this is God's good news for the whole world. And Paul even says this in the very beginning of, of the book when he says that the gospel is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And I think what Paul is doing there is he's echoing what God said to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. When God called Abraham to follow him and he promised Abraham that he would make out of Abraham a great nation. And through Abraham and his family, who would become the Israelites, the Jewish people, through Abraham he would bless the whole world. So this thread of God's good news for the whole world runs throughout the whole Bible. And in particular, in light of the situation that Paul finds himself in in the first century, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, proclaiming this good news, this question to the Jew first and also to the Gentile is of extreme importance. One of the biggest controversies in the early church is, will the Jewish people, on the one hand, accept Jesus as the Messiah? That's one big question. And they, on the other is, are Gentiles welcome into God's family without having to be circumcised, that is, without having to become Jewish first. So this Jew and Gentile question is a hugely significant question. And for Paul, this is a very important and personal question because in Romans 9 through 11, Paul brings up the question of how do God's people the Israelites, throughout the story of the Bible, and even in, in Paul's day, how do they fit into this big biblical story? Particularly when what Paul sees among his fellow brothers and sisters, profound unbelief, a rejection of who Jesus is as the Messiah, the promised one of Israel, the one to whom all of the Old Testament was pointing. And so when we come to this section in Romans, chapters 9 through 11, Paul is dealing with a deeply personal question for himself and for the whole story of the Bible, particularly because Paul himself was once a persecutor of the church. But not only that, we saw last week, Paul is in deep anguish for his fellow brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters, because of the privileges they've been given. Throughout 
the story of the Bible. And so what I want us to think about today is we're going to look at two questions and we're going to look at a conclusion. We're going to continue looking at if God's promises were to God's people and there is such profound rejection of the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus, does that mean that God's word has failed? And we looked last week and discovered that Paul's answer was absolutely not. God's word has not failed because God's word and his promises are not dependent on human effort or achievement. And Paul uses the example of Jacob and Esau to illustrate that what God is doing is according to his purpose. He says, according to his purpose of election, that God has a purpose to bring about rescue and renewal for the whole world, but it's according to his plan and his purpose. And so I want to continue to look at this this morning, this issue, this problem of unbelief, not only for the Jewish people of Paul's day and even throughout the story of the Old Testament, but even for us today. And so we're going to look at this whole section, 9, 14 through 10, 4. But before we read this, just to help you uh, orient yourself, like I said, we're going to look at two questions that, that are asked that Paul addresses and then a conclusion that Paul gives. So just to help you to see, the first question that gets asked is in verse 14. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's the first question. The second question that Paul puts forward and then answers is in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he that is God still find fault? And then if you look down in verse 30, Paul says again, what shall we say then? And he gives us a conclusion to this part of the letter. So two questions and a conclusion. But before we look at those questions and the conclusion he gives, let's, let's read this. So feel free to, to follow along there in your worship folder or just, uh, just listen. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and my and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's a pastoral challenge that I have when I come to passages like this. Do I go uh, really slow and do little bits at a time, or do we take a bigger picture perspective? Uh, I chose to take the bigger picture perspective, obviously. And, And I hope by doing that, some of the details and perhaps phrases and questions that may emerge as you you read this passage can be put in um, in com- some kind of framework to help you navigate what Paul is is saying here. Okay, so first, let's let's navigate this by looking at these two questions in verses fourteen to twenty nine that uh, Paul raises and then he answers. And remember, the big issue Paul is addressing is the problem of unbelief. The problem of unbelief, particularly with respect to God's chosen people, the Jewish people. And so the first question Paul asks here, in light of the answer he's already given in verses 1 through 13, that God's word has not failed. If that's true, then the question is, well, is there injustice on God's part? And Paul's answer to this injustice question is absolutely not. It's not as though God is being unjust with respect to the Jewish people or, for that matter, to any person. And notice how Paul addresses this question, this charge that is God being unjust. And where does that claim or that question come from? It comes from the very end here when uh, Paul says, he's quoting from the story of Jacob and Esau, when God had told Rebekah when she was pregnant with Jacob and Esau, these two twins, and God says that the younger, the, the older will serve the younger before they had been born, before they had done anything good or bad. 
God has chosen Jacob and not Esau. And the question is, well, that sounds very unfair. That sounds very unjust. And Paul's answer to that claim, that charge against God, is that that could not be further from the truth. And why is that? Well, notice what he says. How does he answer? He answers this charge of God being unjust. He defends God's justice by proclaiming God's mercy. He says, For God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So here's what you need to understand. This entire chapter is just dripping with the message that God is sovereign. And that his sovereignty is fundamentally both just and merciful. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Paul's point here in responding to this accusation that God might be unjust in his sovereignty is he proclaims his mercy and he says that the basis upon which that God deals with sinners is on the basis of his mercy. And therefore, God is not being unjust. When he says about Jacob and Esau, I am going to choose Jacob and not Esau. It is through Jacob that I will continue to carry out my promises to bless the world. Now, if that's the case, notice here, what then does he say? Why does he bring up Pharaoh? He says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So there, who, why does he bring up this bit about Pharaoh? Well, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, Paul is referring back to the early chapters of the book of Exodus, when God's people had been in slavery for over 400 years and they're crying out for rescue. And God sends Moses to deliver his people from the oppression and the slavery of Pharaoh. And if you go back and read that story, it's a fascinating read. Because one of the things you notice is that the, the, the story tells us that Pharaoh, when he's confronted with, through Moses, God's call to Pharaoh to let his people go, at times Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, I'm not going to let you go. And then, you know, Pharaoh relents and says he'll, he'll go. And then you have various points where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And both are true. And what I want you to notice in this charge of his God being unjust in the ways in which he carries out his purpose, he uses Pharaoh as a, an illustration to show that in God's elective purposes, in his sovereign purposes, 
those purposes are not random. They're not vindictive. They're, they are, in fact, purposeful. Because Pharaoh's story illustrates that God is working through even those who are set against him to bring about his good purposes for anyone who trusts in him. Now, I can imagine even my myself, when you're listening to this, even the idea that God would choose some and not others, it just, it grates against our sensibilities. And why is that? Well, I suppose there may be a number of reasons why. One reason, though, and I would tend to say that this lies at the bottom of all the others, is that we have a very hard time accepting that we are not entitled to anything from God except his just judgment. You have to let that sink in. Nowhere does the Bible present God as someone who is on the hook to do our bidding. Nowhere. And so when here the story tells us that God raised up Pharaoh, why did he raise up Pharaoh? He raised up Pharaoh to show his power. Look in verse 17 again. That I might show my power. Now you have to think about this. Pharaoh was the most powerful human agent on the face of the planet. And God brings the kingdom of Egypt to its knees. God is demonstrating to the people of that time and to us. There is no earthly power greater than God. The whole story of the Exodus shows God's power over human rebellion, over the reality of human suffering, and his ability to rescue us from it. But also, God shows not only his power, but for, so that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God wants every human being to know his name. And by know here, not just um, like a name tag, like, oh, I learned your name, but to know him intimately, to have a relationship with him. So here, what Paul is doing, he is showing us that any charge that God is being unjust and his sovereign purposes, it carries no water when you know who God is and you know who we are. So one writer summarizes it like this, that if God hardens some, and let me, I'll explain uh, what, what... Paul means here when he says to harden and, and when God does that to Pharaoh in, in Exodus. If God hardens some, he's not being unjust, for that is what our sin deserves. And if, on the other hand, he has compassion on some, he, is, he isn't being unjust, for he's dealing with us according to his mercy. Now, you might feel like, well, it still sounds like God's being unjust if he's hardening someone's heart like Pharaoh. And here's what you need to understand about what does that, that concept or that image mean? 
Paul's actually prepared us for this earlier in Romans. In Romans chapter 1, when he's, he's describing the bad news, he's describing the, the, the total sickness of the human heart in rebellion against him, Paul says that God handed over the human race or delivered them over. In other words, God's hardening is giving us what we most want. Think about this. According to the Bible, what we most want is not him. What we most want, according to the Bible, is to be our own lords, our own master. And when the Bible talks about God hardening someone, it is God in his justice saying, okay, I will give you what you want, and I will allow you to continue to live in keeping with what you most desire, which is to go on forever in rebellion against me. That is a just thing for God to do. He's not being unjust. At the same time, God is not being unfair when he has mercy on hard-hearted sinners. To put it like this, the amazing thing about the story of the Bible is not that some are saved and others are not saved. What is amazing about the sovereignty of God and his gracious salvation is that anyone is saved at all. And why is that? It's because of what Paul has said earlier in Romans 3 when he said, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You really will never understand the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you don't come to terms with what you deserve is to be eternally separated from God forever. And that would be just. God owes you nothing. He owes me nothing. So that when God is merciful... And he breaks into your life. It's not because you somehow wised up. It's not because you grew up in the church. It's not because you grew up in the United States. It's because God, by his sovereign grace, according to the praise of his glorious grace, has been merciful to you. Though you don't deserve that mercy. Do you see how, on the one hand, that's so profoundly humbling? And at the very same time, it's so profoundly affirming. So that's the first question he addresses is, is God being unjust? The answer is absolutely not. The second question, though, is, well, if God's purposes are according to his will, why does he still find fault with us? Why are we still responsible? If if God's purposes are absolutely sovereign and we can't change his will, then why are we still held accountable? And notice Paul's answer to this question. Verse 20, it's a series of questions about our identity, about who we are in relationship with God. Listen here. 
Who are you, O man, or O person, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, what, what's, being, what's Paul doing here? Um, first of all, he uses imagery here of a potter and clay. And um, I, I, I've only thrown uh, pottery one time. I have a brother-in-law who is a professional uh, potter. And um, it is fascinating for, for me to watch him sit down with this um, nondescript clump of mud. And he puts it on a wheel. And he makes that thing spin. And he has absolute control over this clump of mud out of which he makes this incredibly beautiful item. Uh, and some of them are kind of normal. They're just your run-of-the-mill coffee mug. But some of them are these profoundly beautiful vases or bowls or um, pitchers, whatever. What Peter or Paul is trying to get across here, y- you, you have to understand, yes, all human beings are created in God's image. And by virtue of that reality, you have dignity and worth. And at the very same time, though, there is a tremendous chasm between God and us. We are not two equals. And let me try to illustrate this for you by way of the teenager. Um, uh, my, my teenager's not here today, um, and this is not really about him, because we've all, at least many of us here, have been teenagers. And there, there's one uh, common thread about a teenager is there is no one who sees the world more clearly and more accurately than the teenager. And they will fight tooth and nail to prove that you, uh, though seasoned and many life experiences, you just don't get it. And, and usually the comeback isn't that you, don't haven't, you haven't lived, it's that you haven't lived now. You couldn't possibly understand that the life and experience of uh, falling in love as a teenager now. And therefore there is this dynamic of the teenager sees himself or herself in this very um, privileged, powerful situation of educating the rest of us about how life really works. And, And I say that because I think those of us who are not teenagers and have been through this, we all were like this. That's what Paul is saying here. The questions that are emerging in this chapter come from that kind of disposition where we view our relationship with God as one in which we're equals and perhaps even there are things about our relationship with God where God could really use our help. And Paul is saying the answer to this question, who do you really think you are to talk back to God? 
just like the mud on the potter's wheel cannot talk back to the potter. And to further this, what is God doing then as he shows mercy? What if, verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What does God as the potter want us to see and know about him? Notice the description here in verse 22, there is a listing here of his character, his wrath, his power, his patience, his glory, his mercy. Think about this for a moment. Why is it good for us that God reveals his wrath? Because according to the Bible, God's wrath is not sort of him losing his temper. No, God's wrath, it's his settled opposition to that which is destroying what he loves. But notice it has here, his power is described. That there is nothing, as we saw with Pharaoh, that God can't overrule or work through to bring about good for those who trust in him. Or his patience. God is not... Uh, impulsive. God's mercy and his compassion and his purpose of election is not vindictive. It's not uh, impulsive. It's slow. It's patient. And it's full of his glory in order to show his mercy. And Paul here uses two passages from the Old Testament to explain about this mercy with respect to both Jews and Gentiles. Notice the two proofs he gives here in verses 24 through verse 29. Paul is here describing a passage from Hosea. And the whole book of Hosea is really about God's people who have been unfaithful to God. And through the story of the prophet Hosea and his wife Gomer, God demonstrates his faithfulness to an unfaithful wife. And Paul, however, picks up on this and he applies it, here he says, not from the Jews only but also to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul uses this quote from the prophet Isaiah and the promise that God makes here as God's promise to overturn what would, is an apparently hopeless situation. In other words, what Paul is saying is that as the potter, God is taking clay who are hopeless and he's restoring them to a right relationship with him. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. She who was not beloved, I will call beloved. But then in verse 27, he addresses Israel specifically. Those about whom he has great anguish. He says, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, 
Only a remnant of them will be saved. Now, hang with me here. Here's what Paul is doing. He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah in, the, in, in, in verse 27 to 29. And he's quoting from the prophet Hosea just beforehand. And what he is trying to show us here is that God's purpose of salvation is for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles find themselves in the same predicament. Left to themselves, they are and were not my people. It is only by grace that anyone is called my people. And yet, in verse 27, through the end there, verse 29, Paul is showing that in the very story of God's people, God promised, I will make you as numerous as the stars in the heavens and as the sand on the the seashore. And yet, that people, time and again we see in the Old Testament, have rebelled and disobeyed against God. And God is saying, even from that people who ought to know better, I am still going to rescue a remnant. I'm still going to rescue this people. And so then Paul addresses this whole question. If God is not unfair, what is he saying? He's saying that God is acting according to his character as a God who is merciful. And so where does this leave us then with this question about the unbelief of Paul's Jewish friends? Let's look at the the conclusion he gives here in verse 30 through 10.4. Notice if you look in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10 here, Paul's conclusion really begins here with Paul's desire. Look in verse 1. He says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for my Jewish brothers and sisters, that's for them, is that they may be saved. This is what he longs for. It's what he talked about his anguish in chapter 9, verse 1. But notice what he says. He says, they do have a zeal for God, a love for God, a zeal for him, but it's not according to knowledge. And what is this lack of knowledge? In verse 3, he says it's because they're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Notice here in in verses 930 through 10.4, righteousness is used six different times. What is the righteousness of God that Paul has in view? That you have to get straight. Well, Paul told us in chapter 3, verse 21, when he says, the good news begins in chapter 3, verse 21 in this book. When Paul says, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. Apart from the law, that is, apart from the Old Testament, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And what is that righteousness? That righteousness is Jesus. The righteousness of God is Jesus. That's why Paul here says, in seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Here's what I want you to understand. This issue of being ignorant about the righteousness of God is not just an issue that Paul faced back then. It's an issue that goes to the very heart of unbelief. Because what is unbelief? 
Unbelief at its core is a refusal to submit to God's righteousness. How do we do that? We try to build our own righteousness. What is our righteousness? Think of it like this. Our righteousness is a validating performance record. It's what you look to in your life to validate that you are somebody. But what if the Bible says in your own effort, you are nobody? We need a righteousness that is given to us. And this is what makes verse 30 to the end of chapter 9 here so amazing when he says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why did they not succeed? Because they did not pursue it by faith. So here's where I want to leave you this morning. The cross of Jesus Christ, here described as the stone of stumbling, is profoundly humbling. If you've never been humbled by the cross of Jesus Christ, or to use the imagery here, if you've never stubbed your toe against the cross of Jesus Christ, you're still yet ignorant of it. And the main question Paul is pressing on us in this passage is, how will you relate to this rock which God has laid down? I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The question for each of us this morning is, this rock of offense through faith becomes a rock of refuge. It becomes your righteousness. It becomes a whole new way of living life. The gospel opens up to us a whole new and utterly unique way of life. One of refuge, of reconcile, of freedom, of forgiveness. And Paul is pressing on us, how will you relate to this Jesus, this righteousness that God has freely given to us? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for this passage, which is profound and and wide and deep and rich. And yet we ask that, as perhaps we might find ourselves asking sometimes, it just seems like God isn't fair. Or it seems like, how can he still hold us accountable, given we can't resist him? And yet we ask that you would humble us, that you would help us to see our place in relationship with you as we should, that we are your creatures And you are our creator. And you have not left us alone, but you have put into this world the righteousness that we need. And so we ask that you would set us free from a life of striving and of pursuing a righteousness that comes from our own efforts. And instead, that you would give us the grace to pursue a righteousness that is by faith alone in Christ. Would you please do that for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.